0: Our Father, we thank you that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and that the dead in Christ will rise first, as we just sang. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, and thus will always be with one another forever. Father, you said that is a truth that is only applicable to those who are in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ, who have never put their faith and confidence in the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, to die without that, you said, is to die forever lost. So help us to be faithful to the truths of the gospel, to share it consistently, persistently, never giving up, never quitting. Help us to be faithful until that shout from heaven comes and the Lord Jesus calls us home. Father, help me today in these services again tonight as we have meet the pastor. May you bring visitors who need a church home. May you speak to them, those who have never met the Lord Jesus and those that already love him. So we commit the day to you and we thank you in advance of what you'll do here through all of our Sunday school classes, through our adult Bible fellowships. To those in ministry to our children this morning and later tonight in Awana, may you be glorified in all things, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word, would you, Jonah chapter 4 this morning, Jonah chapter 4, he is a prophet who lived 750 years before Christ, and his message is just as relevant as if it were written today because the revelation of God is before you this morning. Now, when we had finished chapter 3 last week, you might have thought you could have written over the top of it, mission accomplished. But actually, the climax of the book comes in the fourth chapter, and there are many things that God wants to do in the life of this prophet. We're going to focus just on the first four verses, but to give you a flow of where we're headed, we're going to read the entire chapter. Follow along Jonah chapter 4, but it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, an abundant and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight should I have not had compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand as well as many animals. Now here's a book chart just to refresh your mind. We've seen that this prophet's writing revolves around two commissions. The first commission and the opening verse the word of the Lord came to Jonah and then his recommissioning The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And we've been studying these two commissions under four headings. In the opening chapter, we see him as the prodigal prophet running away from the will of God. In chapter two, in the belly of the great fish, he does what you would do. He becomes the praying prophet. And while he's praying there, he commits to the will of God fully for his life which allows God to use him as the preaching prophet in the third chapter, as he brings the message of forgiveness and salvation. But now in the fourth chapter, we will see in the next three times together, he is the pouting prophet. And so when God paints the picture of a man in scripture, he does it with great honesty. He paints the portrait blemishes and all, and it's no different with this man. Here is a man whom we found in chapter 3, ministering to the Ninevites, but in chapter 4, we're going to find the Lord God ministering to him. He's a man who is filled with self-determination right now, self-will, and a certain unhealthy self-love. But God's not just interested in the masses. God is interested in the individual. He's interested in you. The very hairs in your head are numbered. God's commitment is not just to reach out to the world, but to grow us as individuals. Now, if you remember, with each chapter, I've given you three words that summarize the chapter under the headings. So under chapter 4, next to verses 1 to 4, write the word attitude, the word attitude. Then verses 5 through 8, right next to verses 5 through 8, the word consistency, the word consistency. And then finally, next to verses 9 through 11, if you will, write the word perspective, the word perspective. So what we find here in the fourth chapter is Jonah matriculating into the Jehovah Theological Seminary. If you ever wanted to go to seminary, well, you have a chance for the next three weeks. We're going to go through God's seminary, and God's going to take us through three courses. First, a course on attitude, then a course on consistency, and then finally a course on Perspective. Now, let me remind you that the Old Testament was written for us. The Tanakh, as the Jews call it, they don't call it the Old Testament. It's the only Bible they have. But Paul, in referencing it, said it was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And then uh, he reminds us in Romans 15 for whatever was written in earlier times. And of course, the earlier times he's referring to. It's the times of the Old Testament era. The Old Testament was not written just for them. It was written for us as well. The early church for a long time had nothing but the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Christ and to help the church to grow until the New Testament was completed. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so he wants us to understand that the application of the Old Testament did not expire with the Old Testament era. And that's why typically I will preach a New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book, because we are called as pastors to preach the whole counsel of God. So with that uh, introduction, let's begin God's course in attitude. First, I want you to begin to see there on your outline, Jonah's angry heart jonah's angry heart that's the first point that we're going to explore all right the verse opens in this chapter but it greatly displeased jonah and he became angry what was he angry over remember the chapter divisions are artificial so you have to look back into the last verse of the previous chapter in verse 10 where we left off when god saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which He declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. This explains what happened in heaven. Why the Ninevites, while the Ninevites repented on earth, God relented in heaven. So, how do we understand a verse like this and some 40 others in Scripture that says God repented or God relented? God is immutable. The immutability of God means he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God said in Malachi, for I, the Lord God, do not change. So when it says God relented, does it mean he changed his mind? I mean, if God knows it all, how can he possibly change his mind? Well, again, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. Anthropos, man, morphism, at least outside of math refers to a state of being. And so we're describing God's state of being using human terms. And so very often God will do that in scripture. He'll use human language because it's the only way that we can begin to picture in some respects what he is like. So when the Bible speaks of God's outstretched arm or that his arm is not too short to save that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, those are anthropomorphisms. We know that God doesn't have eyes or ears or arms, and yet those are descriptive words of God's actions in Scripture. God is spirit. Only God the Son, who at one point incarnated himself, took on a human body. And so these are human characteristics to, de- to describe divine activity. And so when we think of how God changed his mind, let's think about why. First of all, remember, Nineveh was a wicked, wicked and violent city. You can think of people in military campaigns throughout the history of the world who have been bad dudes. These people are right at the top of the list. And if you want some insight into what they were like, you can read the book of Nahum, because some hundred years later, they went right back into their sin. So God, one, held his wrath because they were no longer living in their wickedness. They were living with broken hearts, with sackcloth and ashes, but the second reason God changed his mind was simply because he saw in the future what he was going to accomplish on the cross. And I mentioned this briefly last time, and I guess it surfaced a lot of questions, so let me underscore it again. Take your, uh, hold your finger here and turn to the book of Romans, if you will, the book of Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3. I hope you bring a Bible to church. I promise you'll get much more Out of any message I preach, if you have a Bible in your hands, turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. This is a passage you should virtually have memorized. It's a very, very important passage of Scripture. Now, it's interesting, when it says God relented here in the book of Jonah, God uses a Hebrew word that describes inner suffering, the calm. It refers to inner suffering. So when God relented... The writer is using under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Jonah, a word that describes God's inner suffering in relenting. You say, well, in what sense did God suffer on the inside? Well, Romans really gives us divine commentary on that. Look at verse 19 of chapter three. Paul says, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. If you look across the page at verses 10 to 18, You'll see the type change is very different because it, these are a number of Old Testament quotations that are strung together. So he has just quoted from the law, something the Jews revered greatly, these Old Testament passages. And so he's reminding them that these preceding Old Testament quotations which they might assume applied only to the wicked Gentile people who were lawless. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, or more literally in the marginal note of the NES, rendering the Greek, those who are in the law. In other words, he's encapsulating this truth specifically to the Jewish people. In other words, the Old Testament law that he just quoted, there's none righteous, hey, yeah, that's the Gentiles. No, he's saying that's you too. You Jews who are in the law, it applies to you so that, here's the reason, every mouth, you could say every person may be closed. One of the purposes of the law was to shut your mouth, that all the world, Jew and Gentile alike, might become accountable to God. And so it's a vivid picture of a defendant standing before a judge, and when the weight of the evidence is brought before the court, He's silent. His mouth is shut. His ego-filled heart has just been shattered. Every mouth will be stopped at the judgment bar of God Almighty. You see, that's what the law does. It pulls the rug out from underneath us. We're left with no defense. We're found guilty. And uh, why are we guilty? Look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. All of us Know God's law, whether we have it in written form or as in Romans 2.15 underscores, the law that has been written into your heart. Even the Gentiles who don't have a written copy of the law manifest the truth that they have it in that their conscience defends or accuses them. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, declared righteous, you could paraphrase it, saved in his sight. Why? Because all of us have known the law, and the law shows that all of us have disobeyed his law. The law can't save us. Then why did God give the law if he can't save us? Notice, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God never gave his law to redeem you. He gave his law to reveal you, to show you what you are like. Paul said it this way in Galatians 3 Therefore, the law has become our tutor. The Old English says, our schoolmaster. To do what? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified. What? By the law? No, but by faith. So the law is like a mirror. You look into a mirror and you see your face is dirty. You look into the mirror of God's law and you see your soul is dirty. You see what's on the inside, and so logically, verse 21, follow, but now apart from the law, apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from trying to keep the golden rule, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, and that's a major theme in the book of Romans, how God, who is righteous and holy, can put unrighteous man in a righteous state with himself. How God, who is absolutely holy, can declare a guilty man holy without violating his own holiness. And unless you have the righteousness of God, the same righteousness that God has, unless that's been accredited to your account, the scripture is clear. You'll never see the inside of heaven. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's one of the descriptive ways to summarize the Old Testament. They just called it the law and the prophets or the psalm, the law and the prophets, different things like that. And so the law and the prophets, all of its ordinances, all of its types, all of its prophecies, witness to the truth that you cannot be saved by your obedience to the law. The law was never the means to being saved, it revealed how we needed to be saved. So don't ever get the idea that God saved the Ninevites and people in the Old Testament era in a different way than he saves us. That you know, they were saved by human effort, but we're saved by grace. No, he saves us on the same basis. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So, the great promise here of verse 22 is that salvation is given to all those who believe. All are in need of believing for the simple reason, verse 22 continues, for there is no distinction. For there is no distinction. That's actually the main idea of verse 23. Now, kids, you know, when they learn, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, believe in the Lord Jesus, and so forth, they often learn Romans uh, 3.23 in the scriptural alphabet, apart from the introductory phrase, which is the subject of the clause, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're the pagan idolater that he described in the first chapter, the moral religious man in the first half of the second chapter, The religious Jew in the second and third chapter, it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, a righteous man in the eyes of humanity, or a wicked man in the eyes of the law, the fact is there's no distinction. Our need is the same. Why? For all, because it's causal, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if that's true. He says, therefore, we're being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which came in Christ Jesus. So God justifies us freely without a cause in us, he does it by his grace. Well, how can he do that? That would seem like a judge letting a guilty person go free without any consequence. Well, he explains further in verse 25, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood. To propitiate means to appease anger. So God's anger was appeased, it was satisfied, it was finished through the blood of Jesus, our substitute. And it's, of course, applied to your heart through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, the cross is a demonstration of the righteousness of God Almighty. It is showing how God can righteously forgive sin because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The forbearance of God. Another translation says, while God was waiting patiently, the new NASB 2020 renders it God's merciful restraint. God temporarily withheld his judgment and his forbearance and his merciful restraint. There was his inner suffering that he put up with because he was looking forward to the cross of the Lord Jesus. So God could put his arms around King David, who is a murderer and an adulterer, who he illustrates with in the next chapter that he was saved not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace through faith because God was passing over the sins previously committed looking forward to the cross. So God was able to change his mind or to relent because he was looking forward in his forbearance what he would accomplish through his son. That's why Moses can write these words in the book of Numbers. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Oh, yes, he will. Although it looks forward, Just understand, God in the truest sense never changes his mind. These are human words to describe how we can take the infinite God and in time and space coordinates understand what he is doing here with the Ninevites. And the wages of sin is still death. If you've been born only once, you will die twice, first physically and then eternally. But if you've been born again, which is necessary to enter heaven, you will die at best once physically and you will enter into the presence of God. So back here in the book of Jonah, understand that when God sees the Ninevites repent, it's not like, oh, wow, look at that. I didn't know they were going to do that. Did you see that? They don't have this discussion in the Holy Trinity like it Caught them by surprise. No, God is never surprised. And yet he relents. In verse 1 of this chapter says, It greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. Now that first word is one of the strongest contrastives that you can use in Hebrew. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he becomes angry angry you would have thought he would have been the happiest man in the world but he becomes angry now let me ask you a question put yourself in Jonah's place you're sent to Buford County as a missionary to reach the 200,000 plus people you come here to preach and all 200,000 plus repent. What would the average evangelist do? Get this news back to headquarters. Let all our supporters know what's happening here. We need to get the word out. You'll never believe what's happened here in Beaufort County. What an answer to prayer beyond anything we could think. Evangelist watches even the senator walk this oddest trail. But no, not, not, not Jonah. Jonah is angry. He is greatly displeased. And the word anger means he burned within. There's an inner burning. He's ticked off. Lord, why did you do this? Why did you allow this? Have you ever been down this road? Now, we can uh, rag on Jonah, but sometimes we get angry at God. Sometimes we're greatly displeased with what seems to be unfolding in our life. Maybe not what we expected, maybe not what we wanted. And yet, this man, he's a prophet but he's also a patriot and so if you're here for the introductory sermon we understood that he had three contemporaries Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea who had already put a prophecy out that God was going to definitely use the Ninevites to judge Israel. You forgave them? He would rather have seen them destroyed. Of course it's down the road some when Their children's children will repent of their repentance, and the prophecy will come true because God cannot lie. So what pleased God displeased Jonah. It made God happy. It makes Jonah unhappy. That's Jonah's angry heart. Second, let's think further about Jonah's earnest plea. Jonah's earnest plea. Notice, if you will, how verse 2 begins he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? I told you, God, that this is what would happen. It's kind of a funny prayer because it's really a fault-finding discourse with the Lord. He's complaining to God. And of course, the key to understanding Jonah is, again, understanding what drove this whole thing. And if you weren't here, this is the eighth of ten sermons. And the prophet Jonah, go back and listen to the introductory sermon. But understand that this guy, in some respects, he said, when I was back in my own country, he was very territorial. He was just thinking about Israel and the chosen people of God. And he had lost his passion and his insight for others. When people become territorial, this is, you know, my denomination or my church or my missionary work, it's a real mark of carnality when they've lost perspective for the bigger work of God. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, had to deal with this same problem in dealing with the Corinthians. He asked this question. Now, I mean this, that each of Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. Some said, you know, we follow Paul. He's the one who came and preached to us and he led us to the Lord. And I'm of Apollos, some said, because he was a great order. And we like Apollos, man. He can preach like nobody else with passion and fire. And Paul, well, he's unimpressive. And I'm of Cephas. I like Peter. You know, he's one of the original 12. And then the super spiritual, we don't recognize anybody but Jesus. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or you baptized in the name of Paul. That's lethal when this becomes our attitude towards the work of the Lord. Now today, if you practice any form of biblical separation with a growing apostasy that is covering over the American church, you're viewed as narrow-minded or egotistic or insecure and everything else, when in reality, you're obeying God's truth. But if you develop an attitude amongst those who are true followers of Christ, and you can't appreciate the work that God is doing through them, then it is indeed an attitude that indicates that you are out of fellowship with the Lord. Sometimes Christians can develop this attitude. Sometimes they don't like that God is blessing another person when they think I should be blessed in that way. Where God is blessing another ministry when we think, I should be blessed in that way. You get very territorial. That's where Jonah is. But God's going to deal with his servant. Now look further, if you will, in verse 2. Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He's a well-informed individual. I have all five characteristics that are descriptive here of God underlined in my Bible. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. I mean, he would have made a fantastic seminary graduate. There's no problem with his orthodoxy. There's great problems with his orthopraxy. He hadn't put into shoe lather the truths that he knew and understood. In fact, God had more trouble with Jonah at this point than he had with the Ninevites. The Ninevites, you could say, were in closer harmony with the Lord than Jonah was at this point. One of the great lessons from this book is that in spite of a person's orthodoxy, that they may be right with God and called of God, that even even if their attitude is not always in sync where God wants it, God can still use them. You meet people today who are fundamental in their doctrine, but their attitude stinks. Or we witnessed in the 80s, people like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, and even in the last five years, all these preachers, some who now even deny the faith, but nonetheless, they opened the word of God, and God used them to bring people into the kingdom. Because in spite of the messenger, it doesn't change the power of the message, And so here is a man who is behaving in the wrong way, and and God, God wants to fix this. And when our attitude is not in sync with our actions, we can do the right things, but the wrong attitude. Oh, you find out you're a volunteer in preschool. Oh, my. Lord, why me? What did I do? You go and serve those little ones that are precious in the sight of the Lord, and you're never more like Christ than when you care about children. People say, well, that's not my ministry. Those are people who are way out of sync with the word of God and who have a warped perspective. We are to prove ourselves in the words of the Apostle James, doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so here is a man who who lacks compassion. He's pouting. He's filled with a sense of anger and bitterness. He does the right thing, but with the wrong motive. And some of us, we may not be willfully rebellious like Jonah, but we want everything to be just right before we feel like we can act. You know, we're looking for the perfect time to share the gospel, you may have to wait to the rapture, and then you'll miss all your opportunities. I suppose there was never a perfect time. A man came to me not long ago, a, a new Christian. He said, I just don't feel like I can share Christ. I said, why not? He said, because my life has been so hypocritical in the past. As a believer, I was unfaithful to my wife. And she wanted to reconcile, but I refused to. And I divorced her. Then in disobedience, I remarried. How can God ever use me? And I said, well, number one, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 7, brothers and sisters or brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. Said, you can't unscramble eggs, whether this happened as a believer or as an unbeliever. You can't unscramble eggs. The question is, will you go forward? And if you really truly know Christ, then you have something to tell. You have something to tell about God's forgiveness, how God can forgive lost people, and how God can even reforgive and uh, give a, a saved person a second chance. So you'll never be more ready than you can be today. Now you need to do it with the right heart and with a clean heart. Remember the disciples, we mentioned it briefly last week from John chapter four. They go into town, they walk right by a Samaritan woman who would have gone by them. They go into the town, they get the food, they don't share Christ with anyone. And then she goes back and the whole town comes because they're open, they're searching, they're looking because someone had plowed the fields before them, namely John the Baptist as he preached in this area. And Jesus said, do not say, there are yet four months. And then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields there, white for harvest. So notice his earnest plea again here in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said? Circle that word, I. While I, circle the word I, was still in my circle, the word my. While I was still in my own country. Therefore, in order to first all this, I, circle the word I, I fled to Tarshish. For I, circle that word, some of you, you need a pen in your hand. This will help you later when you teach it. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, I think it's worth noting to his credit that Jonah told God that he was angry. He doesn't just murmur with him like he can hide it from God, and sometimes we have real, legitimate feelings. Sometimes we have illegitimate feelings because they're not driven with the truth of Scripture, but we think somehow if we just keep them on the inside, God doesn't know about them. Obviously, that's not true. And so it's, it's interesting to, to see where this man is at. He has a real relationship with the living God. He's, he's willing to be honest before God. And we saw him in the belly of the great fish, and... If you remember, look back in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Don't look at me. Look in your Bibles. There's no slide for this. (laughs) Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. So here he is. It's a very positive, a very praiseful kind of Prayer that salvation belongs to the Lord, he deserves all the credit. By contrast, this chapter, this prayer in 4 2, it's negative, it's defensive, but at least it's honest. And so you circle those five uh, first person pronouns, I and my, that are found in the Hebrew text. As we often say, the heart of every problem is a problem of the human heart. That is certainly true. So Jonah's motive in fleeing Tarshish becomes known. He was afraid that God would repent, that he would relent, that he would spare these people, and therefore all that God had said about these people concerning the future of Israel and them would indeed come true. Now that leads third and finally to Jonah's foolish request. Jonah's foolish request. Look, if you will, now uh, at his request of God in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. God, you didn't do what I thought you should do. Nineveh was not overthrown as I thought they should have been. And because you did not do what I wanted you to do, I'd rather just be dead. He despairs of life. By the way, there was another prophet who did the same. We studied him not long ago, the prophet Elijah. Both prophets became deeply discouraged. Both believed that what God had done through their ministries was not what he should have done and what they wanted to see happen. The prophet Elijah wanted to see a complete and total revival. By contrast, the prophet Jonah wanted to see a complete and total destruction. Elijah did not die under a juniper tree and Jonah does not die under his prepared plant that we'll study. Elijah was taken to heaven with a chariot of fire and before we're done, we're going to see that Jonah learns the lesson that God wants him to learn. But for right now, Jonah is very upset because God's plans don't fit with his plans. And the repentance. And the salvation of the Ninevites is so painful to him on the inside. he'd rather die than just have to live with that reality. Think we have any Jonas here today? in the American Evangelical Church? Let me bring it down to where we live. God reveals to you from His word that your satiation with physical things, buying and selling and acquiring, supersedes your obedience to give the first tenth to the living God, as the church believed is unquestionably true for 1,900 years of church history, though occasionally you'll meet someone today who says, well, that was just for the Old Testament. I have messages on that. But God, I love my lifestyle. And I don't want you to touch my lifestyle. Or your superior officer comes to you and says, I have a move for you and this is where you're headed. You know God works through authority and yet you really have come to like living in this community. And you go kicking and screaming with a bad attitude. Or your husband comes home from work and says, Honey, you know I've been praying about this for several years. I believe God wants me to quit my job and go to seminary, and we need to become missionaries in Latvia. Latvia. I don't even know where Latvia is. I mean, couldn't we be like a missionaries to Jewish people in Miami Beach or maybe have a, a, a ministry to all those pagans in Hawaii? Why Latvia? And we crucify Jonah, and we rake a guy like him over the coals. When in reality, many times we are dealing with the same issue. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. It's rather ironic his best prayer was from the most horrible place he could be in and the belly of a great fish. And his worst prayer is in the best place he could ever be. For he saw a national revival. And yet he's depressed, he's despondent, He's in the absolute pits, Lord, take me home to heaven, I just would rather die. But because God is a great teacher and he's patient with his children, he loves us with an everlasting love and he's a magnificent counselor. Notice verse four, God comes with a question. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now that's good counseling. Jonah has a tremendous amount of theology, as we've seen. And God doesn't throw 19 verses and 10 Christian books at him. His problem is not with a problem of knowledge. It's a problem of application. It's a problem of perspective. And we'll dig into that further as we work through the chapter. God is asking a question. And in essence, he's, he's questioning his perspective, Jonah, we're looking at the same awakening, and I'm excited. The angels in heaven are rejoicing, and by the minute, you're growing angrier. Jesus looked over the rebellious Hebrew people in his century, and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Paul walked around the city of Athens where there was more gods than there were people in statuette form. And his heart was broken. His spirit was provoked within. And when Jonah looks at the city of Nineveh and their repentance, he's angry. And God says, look, we're looking at the same thing, but we have two very different perspectives. And Jonah's perspective is warped. He's being driven by emotion when he really needs to bring his emotions under the authority of truth. You can have truth, but if that truth is not governing your feelings, then you'll live by your feelings rather than by the truth of Scripture. And so he's bitter, he's angry. Any bitter Hostile, angry people within the sound of my voice today, anyone bitter because maybe God took your child? Anyone bitter here because your spouse left you when you were faithful and did nothing but care for that spouse? Anyone bitter because you didn't get the promotion that you thought you should get, that you were more worthy and someone else got it in your place? I've had parents come into the office over the decades. I don't know what else I could have done, pastor. We brought the boy to church, we prayed at every meal, we read a Bible story at night. What else could we have done? And look at him, he's gone in the opposite direction. Many times, as the counseling unfolds, you discover they did the right things With the wrong attitude. That there is bitterness and anger underneath. And I'm telling you, when you have bitterness and anger in your heart and that rules your life, it's the perfect formula for a rebellious child. And that's why we find other Christians who maybe didn't do it so greatly, and maybe they didn't even have the the, the same knowledge that you had and the same truths that God had entrusted to you, and that their kids turned out far better. Because they weren't driven by bitterness and anger. Now that's not the only reason, but that is often a reason. Jesus made this statement in Luke 6:40: a pupil. You could render it a disciple. It's the word mafetes, the learner. It's a word that is typically translated disciple in the New Testament. That's what a disciple is, a learner. It's not always used, of course, of true believers. It's used differently in different contexts, but a pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so as a pastor, I do a lot of, obviously, marital counseling and even premarital counseling. And especially in premarital counseling, one of my concerns Uh, is the reactions and the attitudes that a potential spouse brings into the marriage relationship. And if they were brought up and raised in a home where there was a lot of bitterness and anger, a pupil, when fully grown, becomes like, in this case, his parent. And if they bring that attitude into the marriage, it is potentially a formula for disaster. It needs to be rooted out. God has to change it, and before he can change it first, there has to be an admission of the problem. doesn't matter what a rascal your father or mother might have been like, how unfaithful they were. The fact is, is that you are your own person, and you have to deal with the bitterness in your heart. And two, you not only have to admit the problem, but you have to change your thinking because as a person thinks in his, within himself, in his heart, that's what he's going to become like. And third, there has to be a brokenness because if we think we can pull it off in our own ability, the truth that we know needs to be true, it's not going to happen. But unless there's confession, unless there's a renewing of the mind and a brokenness within things can't really change. But when there's bitterness and anger of heart, there has to be forgiveness. Paul writes to husbands, Husbands, you ought to love your own wives as your own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now, I know he's addressing men, but the corollary is true because when you get married, you become one. Consequently, they are no longer two but one, Jesus said. So what you do to your spouse, you do to yourself. And if you hold on to unforgiveness in your heart towards your spouse, it's gonna be destructive to your marriage. Let's look at one more verse. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. If you're new to the Bible, just find Revelation. That's right at the end of the Bible. Scan back a little bit and you will come to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment in verse 15, while we're on this subject of unforgiveness and bitterness and anger. Hebrews 12 verse 15, notice what he says in verse 15, we're in the applicational section of the book of Hebrews, and he says in verse twelve fifteen. see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, please notice it begins with a command, see to it. In other words, we have to take responsibility that we grow in the grace of God and we don't grow in bitterness. And please notice that the writer is not saying, do not miss the grace of God in reference to salvation, but he's speaking here in terms of sanctification, of coming short of the grace of God. You are saved by grace, you cannot earn heaven. But he's not dealing here with justifying grace, if you know the context. He's dealing with sanctifying grace, growing grace. This is what Peter said in 2 Peter in verse 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some people can have had enough exposure to the grace of God to bring them over the line from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But they haven't grown much in grace. So not only are we saved by grace, we're sustained by grace. And so the writer of the Hebrews says here, see to it that no one comes short. Again, he's not talking about losing your salvation. That's absolutely impossible. The writer of the Hebrews, and people love to use Hebrews 6, and yet 10 times in the book of Hebrews, the writer affirms the eternal security of the believer, And so it's just stupid and inconsistent exegesis to conclude from Hebrews 6 that you can lose your salvation. It's not actually speaking about losing salvation. If you've heard some messages on that, he's dealing with not conversion, but like this passage with spiritual growth. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness. Where does bitterness come from? a failure to forgive, or a failure to believe. And so when we refuse to accept God's plan and God's providence, that He is really in charge, that Romans 8.28 is truly true, that He works everything together for good to those who are the called, the saved that he's working everything together to shape us into the image of Christ. If we lose perspective a failure to believe or we have lost our ability to forgive someone else because we feel like they've injured us so much, then bitterness turns into a root of bitterness. Some time ago, I was uh, taking a vine out of one of the trees in our yard and you know those things wrap up there and of course they can just choke and ruin a tree and kill portions of it. So I was pulling on and pulling and finally got it down to the ground. And, and then I started taking it out of the ground. I just kind of walked that thing. And it just like, where's this root going to end? By the time I was done, there was a 15-foot trench of destruction. And it just reminded me that that's what bitterness is like. It just leaves a, a trench of destruction. We use that old saying, one apple, dest- one bad apple destroys the whole barrel. Well, a root of bitterness will not only wreck your life, you can wreck the lives of people who are around you. And you can come short of the growing, sustaining grace of God because of an, uh, an unwillingness to forgive. And so here's God back in the book of Jonah asking his prophet a very simple question. Do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have reason, good reason, to be angry? There is a righteous anger. Scripture speaks of it. And so Paul says in Ephesians, be angry but sin not. But he's asking his prophet, do you have good reason to be angry? And let me just say while we're here, if you're dealing with anger because of an unforgiving spirit, Paul says in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as, just like God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Sometimes people want to hold on to their unforgiveness, and they'll punish their mate through silence. They'll just give them the silent treatment, or they'll punish them from withholding physical affection or any number of things. And they are showing an unwillingness to forgive. And can a Christian withhold forgiveness? And be considered a true Christian? Yes. That's why he's commanding the Ephesians who are saved, who've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he reminds them to be kind, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just like God has already forgiven you. Typically, however, there's this balance here in so many of these truths in Scripture. Typically, a person who is only characterized by unforgiveness is a lost person. And so Jesus can say, if you do not forgive men, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. And if you know that verse of scripture contextually, he's not saying you earn forgiveness by showing forgiveness, but he's saying if you are a forgiven person, then you will forgive others. And so he goes on and he tells, if you remember, the parable of the unforgiving slave. And when he brings it to a close, he said, should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? His Lord was moved with anger. And he handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed him. And then he concludes the parable with the words, so shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So forgiveness on the one hand is the mark of the new birth, but on the other hand, it's a mark of someone who's walking closely with the Lord. And so look, as you walk through this life, people are going to hurt you. and You have to carry forgiveness in your heart, and you'll develop bitterness and anger if either, A, you don't believe God is sovereign over all the details of your life, and Jonah needed to see the sovereignty of God over the Ninevites, Or if you are indeed unforgiving towards someone else. I've heard some real wackos in our day say, well, we need to forgive God. That's blasphemy. Yet that has become a popular teaching amongst a number of women teachers in our country. We need to forgive God. We don't need to forgive God of anything. Because God is absolutely holy and he never does anything wrong. But there is a decision here. See to it, the writer of the Hebrews said. This is a command. Why does it come in? Because there's a certain pleasure in sin. There's pleasure in sin for a season. That's what makes it a temptation. But if we live out this temptation long enough and we choose not to forgive, it will destroy our lives, destroy our families, destroy our ministries, and disqualify us for usefulness. So it all comes down to God's grace melting your heart, and that's what he's trying to do with Jonah. And we've just cracked the door here do you have good reason to be angry? Can God run your life better than you can? See, God knows what he's about. Amy Carmichael, she lived some 80 years ago. She served as a missionary in India for 55 years. She cared for children that were dying in the streets daily, brought them into her orphanage, shared cries, clothed them, had a phenomenal impact. And from her own life experience, she wrote these words. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects, how he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him, how God bends but never breaks when his good he understands, how he uses whom he chooses with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. God knew what he was doing with Jonah and God knows what he's doing with us. And we have no right to be angry. Theologically, incredible prophet. Experientially, at this point in his life, he's lacking greatly. Now that's the first course in the Jehovah Theological Seminary. We have two more. And if you're carrying bitterness today, you can jettison it. And if you feel like God's dealt you a raw deal, you can confess your unbelief and ask God to forgive you and to go forward from this day on. But you cannot experience the sanctifying grace of God until you first experience the saving grace of God. And you must come broken as we studied in Romans this morning, recognizing your obedience to the laws of God cannot save you, but only the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. Call upon him, and he'll receive you today. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for this prophet, for the timeless lessons that we learned from his life. Help us not to miss them. Help us not to see that this is truth for another people, for another age. That this is not simply what you have said, but this is what you are saying. So help us to examine our own hearts this morning. If there's something that we need to personally deal with that is making us ineffective, then help us to deal with it. And as we look back, maybe there's some great failure in our life because we weren't really walking with you as we should. And if that's the case, then help us to recognize it that today can be the first day of the rest of our lives. We thank you for your incredible grace in Jesus, how you as a holy and righteous God can impute the very righteousness of Christ to our account. Though we don't deserve it, you do it by your grace when we receive it through faith. So help someone today to say in simple, childlike faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us, our Father, in these days ahead, especially as we approach our Easter blitz. To not be smug and uncaring, as sadly the American church is, and you know that. But help us to be compassionate. And caring for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Help us not to be comfortable under our own plant just because everything seems good. But help us to care for others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.